Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Welcome to Growing Up Fire, episode 21. Got Ryan Coots back in the house with me. Hey buddy, how's it going? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I don't know. Well, this is all your fault, this one. So you uh, texted me one day and said, you know what we should do? We should just let the people on social media ask us any questions. Actually, you said, ask me any questions <laughs> and I could uh, just handle it. So I'm dragging you down with me. They asked lots of questions and we're going to, you know, we picked some. I mean, you can, there was tons. We can't pick them all, but we're going to go through them one by one here and uh, see if we can get some light on all of this. How does that sound? Yeah, no, that's good. Right? Just sit down here in the basement, chilling out and talking about episode 21. I also can't. Thanks for coming on again. I think this is your third or fourth time, maybe. Can't believe we're at episode 21. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? It's like seven episodes from the end of season one. So, you know, when you think back, it was almost a whole year ago that uh, we were saying, should try this, you know, do a podcast. How hard can it be? <laughs> it's been quite a battle, but you're here with me. We've been doing it, having lots of talks about this, lots of good times. So, all right, we're going to start it off. Rehab for firefighters. So why don't, why don't you start it off? How do you handle rehab and slave? I think it's a program that got brought in a few years ago, um, more kind of streamlined for us. We're lucky to have a few medical professionals that are on the department and kind of took lead in some of that stuff, which was awesome. And so for us right now, uh, we have a rehab trailer, so it gets hooked up to uh, a truck and comes to scene and there's a little command post in the front as well. Our current SOG on it is that we have to go to rehab after two bottles. We started out with one and went to two and there's kind of been some discussion back and forth, you know, about maybe there's a, we do medicals every year with doctors. So, you know, maybe it's, if the doctor says you're good, then two is your limit. If the doctor says, watch yourself a little bit more then one's your limit. So we've had some of those talks too, but I think it's been a successful program. We just saw at work a couple weeks ago, we had a big rural fire and it was like plus 35 and everyone got the help that they needed and EMS helped out. And it was a, a one that definitely showed its true colors. And then about two hours after everyone packed up from that one, we had another structure fire in Slave Lake. And I think rehab was really important at that one, just from like the heat exhaustion during the day and firefighters, there was, you know, probably half the firefighters on the second one were there for both those fires. So really important for us to watch our people and make sure everyone was doing all right. It's funny because it's so different here, right? So we're here in Chestermere and there's only it's minimum staffing of four. So four people go to a fire and then we do a callback and maybe mutual aid if we have time and can get some more and that's 25 minutes away. And so it's very different here. You, we don't get a chance to take those breaks and have that stuff until it's deep into the event. We had a big, huge fire not that long ago and, you know, we, we did get rehab, but again, it was so different. EMS showed up and they have this special truck because we're close to Calgary and they kind of set up the rehab center and, and did all the rehab for the firefighters. And we had granola bars and water and getting everyone checked out. And of course we had some guys with high blood pressure. It was a pretty serious fatality fire. And, and so they held them. Right. And we got some more guys. Luckily, through a call in process, I think we ended up with 13 or 14 firefighters there. So it's just so funny how different it is from place to place. Right. So for me now, like throw on my Seahawk consulting cap and province to province, so HNS to OHNS, it's different. Right. So 
at the end of the day, I think the thing that you really want to think about is the health of your firefighters, right? You're kind of talking about that. So if it's our job to make sure the firefighters stay healthy and we have to look at those limits, right? I work in a place where every firefighter's jacked. They work out all the time and they're healthy and their cardio is unreal and and uh, they get time to do that. Our health and wellness program is unbelievable, but they all still have their limits. So, you know, really watching to go, how many bottles can they truly do depending on the work that they're doing? And so really just say to the officers, keep an eye on them if it doesn't look good or if there's a chance to rest, rest. Uh, if someone looks like they're super tired, then we got to work on that. But nothing really in writing, right? And so again, that consultant hat is have an SOG on it. Make sure that you're following it. Have a process. What does that look like? Is EMS in your province helping you out? Are you doing it yourself? Do you have to call in more people for that? And what does that look like? Right. And so it's done so differently across the country that I don't know if there's a perfect way. Right. But if you always link it back to, like you were saying, link it back to firefighter safety, firefighter health, I think you'll find a way. So. I think a big one for me that I, you know, always am a big advocate for is, and it's probably, you know, where I got the luck of growing up in the fire service is try to make thinking firefighters, right? And I mean, I got to personally go through this and one of my first fires ever, I was at a point where I just kept pushing and pushing because it was so cool. And I was with my boss who I wanted to keep up with and all that stuff and got to a point where, you know, I had to go back to the fire hall and I ended up expelling all fluids from my body in every way and like I think about that now with a little bit more medical training and stuff and like I should have been at the hospital probably and I was severely dehydrated and my body was telling me like enough is enough right and I feel like now hopefully through those processes I've learned and know when my body's telling me those things and I think as a fire service we need to be better at teaching our firefighters to know their limits right there shouldn't be two bottles and then you're done or a bottle and then you're done what I can do and what you could do could be three, four bottles apart, right? It just totally depends. And then also the workload, right? If I'm standing exterior and smoke's just blowing at me and I'm holding a hand line on a defensive fire, well, I should be able to go through four bottles, no problem, right? But depending on who you are and all that stuff. So I think it's really important that we train the firefighters to understand their own bodies and their own capabilities. Yeah, right on. So hopefully that helps uh, our listeners out with what's going on. Uh, I mean, always reach out to us on social media. I can ask more stuff about that uh, anytime. The next one's kind of a cool one. And, and I like the thought of this one. And it's the pucker factor calls, right? And so I think that there's different things throughout my career that have made me have the pucker factor. I still think to this day, any medical call with little kids or any type of call with little kids is a pucker factor for me. It's a scary call. It's a nerve wracking call. It makes you think of your own kids and grandkids. And so for me, I think that that would be, those are probably like my top pucker factor calls. You know, we've had lucky, unlucky. I'm not exactly sure the right word to use here, but great careers where we've got to see the biggest of the big fires, right? Some of the top Canadian disasters in history. And so, you know, you're crazy if you don't think that the Slave Lake fire was a pucker factor call or the Fort McMurray fire or some of those great big crazy forest fires that we've been in, Chisholm, Mitsu, 
and all of those kinds of things. I'm going to go back to, I'm going to pick for one of my top ones is the helicopter crash on Mitsu Road. And so I was going out to a training session in Flatbush, just in a pickup truck, cut through Mitsu because I'd heard there was a, a fire, just a grass fire. And so we got there, it's kind of a regular grass fire underneath of a flare stack at an oil field facility. And here on the radio, some of my buddies are coming in, right? So we're used to working around forestry. And, and so Ambrose was rolling in and could hear hear him on the uh, radio talking about they're coming in. And so I talked to Garth, the forest ranger that day, and he says, oh, I think we got it, Jamie. It's just a little grass fire and the crew's coming in. And I said, yeah, I know. Sounds good, right? I'll get a hold of dispatch and hold our crews and you guys mop her up and it's all good if you need anything call us and I jumped in my pickup truck looked in the rearview mirror to make sure no one was coming before I kind of took off and right when I looked in my rearview mirror the remote helicopter's tail boom goes through my mirror right like I can see it cross the road and I look back and the helicopter's thumping away it's on its side the boom is separated away the helicopter's on its side dust flying everywhere and uh, of course I get on the radio and I'm like, dispatch, 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 you know, just squealing like a little girl and dispatch. Of course, they're typical, calm, cool, collected, go ahead. <laughs> right. Of course, you're forgetting that they didn't just see a helicopter crash. I saw a helicopter crash. And uh, so I'm, I'm basically like, send me everything. I need ambulances. I need fire trucks. I need everybody. I need it right now. A helicopter just crashed at this fire in Mitsu and, and I need everything. And then I don't wait for a response. I jump out of my truck and go running to the back of my truck. So that maybe took 20 seconds, right? The door flips open and out start to pop the firefighters one at a time. So it's smoking now, right? And the firefighters are coming out one at a time. Everybody jumps out and, and then the pilot comes crawling out and we get everybody the road. And the helicopter's just like completely involved in flames. But everybody's out, everyone's accounted for, and we start doing the medical on them and looking at all of those things. And so for me, the the pucker factor there was first helicopter crash. I've seen lots since then, I guess, but that was the first helicopter crash. It's your friends, right? And there's a lot of moving pieces. So there's still the fire to put out. Now there's a helicopter crash. There's six people that need medical attention. And there's no fire trucks just standing there, don't even have a fire extinguisher in my pickup sort of thing. And so very interesting call to involve all of those things, you know, your friends, the helicopter. And we're used to kind of having an army standing beside us or behind us or, or with us, right? And we didn't have any of those. So I, I guess for me, that I would say that's kind of one of my top pucker factor calls. Yeah. How about you? What do you got? You know, honestly, uh, I think for me, Having that abrupt dose of helping with the fire at 15 years old, like I felt like everything was a pucker factor. And then when I started, I probably got a little bit cocky and arrogant in in my younger years and didn't think of things. Looking back now, there was definitely things that like should have been pucker and maybe didn't feel like it. And then moving up to an officer, I feel like I have more pucker now than I've ever had before because I feel like I'm responsible for more people. And one for me uh, that's always been is driving winter conditions, right? We cover 550 kilometers of, of highway and yeah, you know, we've been through some stuff and I'm not going to use my one example because I'm going to use it for a later question that I know, but um, <laughs> right. Like I, I, I can remember a day where I was in a pickup truck 
and we were following our squad and our rescue down Highway 754 to Wabasca, and we went around one of the corners, and both trucks were completely sideways. And the duty officer driving, and I was in the passenger seat and running in the radio firm, kind of, because it was like a two hands on the wheel kind of day. And I just remember being like, both these trucks are in different ditches, and they're probably going to roll like we got steep ditches, and just being like, what is happening? And somehow uh, we had two very experienced drivers that day and they got it, got them both out of it and drifted the whole corner like you'd see off of a movie at like 20 kilometers an hour only though, because it was freezing rain, right? They're barely moving. And I remember talking to Adam who was driving the first truck after and he said like it was the crazy, he's like, that is the craziest thing I've ever done or been a part of. And he was looking down the highway out of his driver's side window, trying to overcorrect and get it back straight. And I remember like that just being one of those ones that, right, there's so much going on in the moment, but then your brain also goes to like, holy, like what could happen here, right? But yeah, and then some of those ones when I was younger, like, you know, my first one is probably my first call ever, me and you go into the Slave Lake fire and like, I'm completely glazed over, you're giving me the safety talk. And like, how could you not say that there was a pucker factor there, right? I had no idea. Like my adrenaline was so high and, you know, about a week after, two weeks after that, going to the helicopter crash, which is like kind of my first serious like rescue MVC type situation with, and my first fatality at 15 years old, right? And that was just, again, I think my adrenaline was so high that, but like just being this 15 year old kid and you're putting out hot spots with this crew And all of a sudden, like there wasn't even time for them to leave me somewhere and be like, you can't come on this because it was like right across the road from us. And then having Joanne's feet were basically had no skin left on them and she couldn't take the backboard. So I did. And like, right, there was just like so much that happened and the adrenaline kind of just took over. But like looking back on that, I remember calling mom, which is still a soft topic in our family. Yeah, That was the pucker (laughs) factor in that one for me is dealing with your mom. But right, like I, I finally got to just like sit down and take a breath and realize what just happened and like kind of comprehend it. And like I said, I think that it's really helped me with my career so far, being exposed to all that at such a young age. But it also forced me to, you know, grow up and mature a lot faster too, right? And yeah, just those, some of those original first things were definitely some of my most intense ones, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when you think of it. Like, I think that every firefighter, we're crazy if we don't agree that every time you see the big column, whether it's a house fire, force fire, vehicle fire, you know, pulling up on that oil tanker that was lighting the grass on fire a couple of years ago. I mean, all of those have a pucker factor, Yeah, but you do get a bit desensitized to it, right? And, and so Slave Lake, I'll go on record here and now saying that that's a very special place and not in... The good way everyone's probably thinking about is that that was an incredible place to get an education in firefighting. Continues to be just this incredible place where the forest and the water and the busy highways and the oil and gas, forestry, you know, and and just all of the things and all the different diversity and people that are around there. It's you know, three, four hundred calls a year, maybe more now. And it was just always like, even 30 years ago when it was 50 calls a year, were just some of the craziest calls. And I tell all these stories and, and I think that a lot of times people think, oh, that guy's lying. Like you must be because like nobody, no town has, but it was just this incredible, crazy, sadistic place where all of this craziness happened all of the time and and there was no getting away from it every time you said the joke was always well what could go wrong (laughs) and something else would go wrong right 
every kind of natural disaster that can happen in that type of area, every kind of car accident, every, you know, everything you can think of just kept happening. And so uh, to me, I think that there was just so many pucker factor calls that you could keep doing this all day and all, and all night, right? There, there's the big ones, right? The biggest pucker factor calls were definitely Slave Lake and Fort McMurray. But there's so many other smaller ones along the way, right? And, and your career is kind of, everyone has those. They're different. Some, some places it's like, oh, we went to this car accident with six people in it. And it was the biggest, craziest call ever. Some are like, we went to a house fire and... We got to fight hundreds of house fires a day in some of those big ones. And so you just get a bit desensitized to it. Yeah, I think, you know, like I look back on it now and just I definitely wouldn't be the firefighter I am today if it wasn't for that place. And I'm forever going to be grateful. And that's always going to be home and where it all started. And, you know, it's funny, we were talking a couple years ago I remember it was right when Jordan and Joel started and I was like telling him I'm like yeah you know like we've been to some crazy stuff and we had years where we had like 10 train derailments and like right things come and go we get quad accidents plane helicopter like right decent amount of fires actually for and I was like you know the one thing I've never actually been to is a tornado and then lo and behold that year we had a tornado at Fawcett Lake and we go out there and you know there's like carnage in this campground and it came off the lake whatever water spout tornado whatever it was and and it was like I'm never going to say anything that I can think of again, right? Like, it's just not happening. So We, we test the black cloud syndrome here all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'll say stuff and, uh, and, and see what happens, right? And I mean, at the end of the day, it's just, I think we get put in the right place at the right time to help with those things and to get through them. So absolutely happy to have been at all of those things, but also those disastrous calls that uh, really make you think. So the next question, and this is a beauty, right? Thanks for sending this in. The biggest challenges through our careers. And so, you know, we've had similar career from start to two different places. So, you know, you've gone through from 15-year-old high school kid all the way up to lieutenant now at the, I think you're a lieutenant (laughs) in Slave Lake. And I've had my ups and downs have been a uh, firefighter and trainer and deputy chief and chief and consultant and back to deputy chief and all those things in between. So I'm going to let you go first. Ah, it's yeah, it's a good question. I think some of the biggest things that I have tried to overcome and that have really challenged me is we were always in a service, like we just said, that was very busy. And even when it wasn't busy with calls, there was always other things, right? We've had anywhere from 120 personnel to 80 personnel at any given time, lots of stations, lots of apparatus. And it was just always go, 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 go. And I think that for a long time, it created a mindset in me that I still to this day try to get out of, of I really get irritated when things don't go my way. Not so much on emergency scenes, but, you know, like ordering equipment or something is broken. And I'm just like, if I got called to a fire and I said, oh, well, we'll come back and put it out in three days because this part's not here or I need to read this book or, right. And I, I find myself like really trying to disconnect myself from like my emergency services. I have to try and be the best person I can be on every single call, every single day to this mechanic just wants to help us and maybe you should chill out and quit yelling at him because he (laughs) hasn't got something done or like, you know, we, we order 
AED pads. I'm going through AED stuff right now. And he's like, you know, like as a COVID, we don't have these AEDs built. And, and I'm like on an email, I'm like, someone could die because of you. And if we don't have this aid, right. And I'm just like, whoa, like you need to tone it down a little bit. Right. And I think just that disconnect because of just starting so young and like always being in a place that was so turned on and there was no time to be turned off. And it, it really has impacted other areas of my life. And now getting a little bit older, I've been trying to really combat that and, and try to, you know, write the mad email and then read it and be like, Ooh, maybe not and delete, yeah, delete a couple sentences. <laughs> Wait 24 and, hours on that. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, I think for me, just like the timelines and the, right. Like I, I think that I am in a profession where I'm expected to be my best that I can be day in and day out whenever something bad happens. And I kind of maybe have too high of expectations for other people in some points in that. So mine, like where I'm at in my career, I would say the, you know, the big challenges are the, you know, week two dealing with a dead dad while the kids are riding in the ambulance. And one of them's asking me questions all the way to town. You know, there's those challenges at Mm -hmm. the start. And then as you kind of go through again, you know, the big, big fires, the big floods, the, you know, Hey, the train just derailed and hit a trailer in town and it's blocking, you know, there's, there's crazy stuff that just doesn't make any sense. And, And those are all challenges. I don't really think, I don't feel like the emerge calls ever really worried me. I don't know. I'm built for it. You know, I've been lucky with the mental health side of it. I've been lucky with the the physical health side of it. I've been super lucky to just be able to go and handle everything that that goes on. So for me, it's going to be the politicians. And, And before politicians get all revved up about this, it's that dealing with people that don't know really anything about what you do right so like to, like the really good ones know 10% of what we do and so you're it's always this constant educational battle and you're always fighting with everyone else that's trying to give an education in what they do right and so democracy is great and i vote for it and it's it's all fantastic but at the same time you're constantly trying to let people know what you're doing so that you can make these good decisions and and it can get frustrating Right. And so the tool to deal with politicians is always the CAO. And so I'm I'm working with my 13th CAO now. So shout out to Betty Osmond and Gary Peterson. You're my best two ever. And not to hurt everyone else's feelings, right? There's the good, the bad, and the ugly in all of that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the ugly or the bad. You know who you are and shame on you. But, you know, for the rest, it's hard for them too, right? Like they're trying to to get through life and and do their thing. And so, you know, never really had trouble with the firefighters, never really had trouble with the calls, never really had trouble with the other agencies per se. It's always the politics of it all. And so to me, that's always the biggest challenges as I move through my career, right? Whether it was the politics of being a firefighter, the politics of being a trainer, deputy chief, chief, you know, all of those pieces. And it sucks. I say that all the time, right? It's like the hardest part of this crazy job that could kill you any time of any day or night is politics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even really make sense that that's the biggest problem, right? I don't have a big cure for that, right? I, I talk about it all the time, ego, turf, time and money and managing all of those pieces. But, you know, for me, that's why I love this question. It is like, those are the big, those are the big challenges, I think uh, another thing that's really hard is that we've been a profession for a very long time when we look at even our counterparts, right? Like police and fire were first and EMS like came centuries later. I still feel like in areas we're 
so far behind our counterparts in emergency services and the fact that, you know, one place can do it this way and one place can do it that way. And there's no guidelines on, you know, there's certain states in the, in the, in America that, you know, we have, this is how we do it, right? Even BC, they have their playbook and at least there's a, but in Alberta, we don't have that and other places don't have that. And you really just, right, like this fire department can have 10 volunteers and a massive population and be somehow making it through. And this fire department can have 40 full-time firefighters and less population and less call of volume. And it just depends on, you know, maybe how good you are at talking to the politicians and how, right. And it just, there's not a streamline for any of it. And we look at, you know, the ambulance service act, police service acts, like those guys have government mandates that say you will have this. And for whatever reason in the fire service, we just kind of slip through the cracks and it's like, you know what, you guys are heroes. You're doing a good enough job. Just keep going. And we've never had to mandate that yet. And I think that's a challenge. Uh, I, I think a big part of that is turf. Yeah. You know, every fire department's fighting for their own chunk of it. Every fire chief's organization is fighting for a different piece. The IAFF's fighting for a different piece. And I mean, all of those got great organizations. Everyone's doing the best they can, but there's no unity. We're really not united on any front. And so everyone's just trying to outdo everyone else and send sell a new piece of equipment or a new technology or a new, right? Oh, well, if you spray water like this and call it this, then this is the coolest thing and hire me to train everybody because now I'm awesome. And I just think that those turf wars just hurt us all, right? So if there's 600 fire departments, we're running it 750 different ways. <laughs> I mean, some of it's the nature of who we are, right? The type A, the type O, the hard charging, you know, we're always right kind of people. But if we ever spent any amount of time actually trying to get organized and get our act together and, and get over ourselves, it'd be quite a different thing, right? You can back that up with some laws and, and things like that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where these questions take us. We might talk about that some more. So here's a beauty. So if you had extra money in your budget right now, how would you spend it and why? For me, I'm going to go on kind of a more broad topic or term in communication. I, whether it be CAD to CAD to get better information from dispatch, whether it be the best radios you can buy that always work and never mess up, which I don't even think is a thing, whether it be sites tick cameras on every single firefighter to be able to right still put your communication being able to see each other and uh like just making the equipment that we have to communicate with each other and to call for help if we need it the very best so that we can know in the back of our mind that something's not going to fail on us if we decide to make that aggressive move or we decide to go for the save a lot, risk a lot, right? I come from a place that has decent radios and has for a long time. There's new things in North America. There's new things in Alberta that we're all trying. There's new tick cameras that every firefighter can have, but it comes with the cost, obviously. And I think for me, I would that would be where I'd spend my money. My money would be on being able to make firefighters be able to communicate better with each other through sight, hearing, seeing, talking, all of that stuff, just really be able to hone that in. Firefighter safety, yeah. really, at the end of the day. Exactly. So, so this isn't a competition, but I think my answer is going to win, just to put that out there. <laughs> For me, any extra money I have, I'm putting it to firefighters, staffing, to make sure that the firefighters are there and coming. And the question is not, 
that fair to us because it's not like, oh, how much money do you have, right? But this is the thing that we often say, was it doesn't matter if it we're talking about wildfires or structural protection or fires or rescues or whatever. I never met one thing or ran into one thing, technology, equipment, trucks, fire halls that put out fires. Firefighters put out fires, right? And so to me, if I had extra money that I didn't know what to do with, which has never happened to me in 30 years, <laughs> probably will never happen to me in my entire career. So it's kind of just one of those fun questions where you could, you know, where would you dump the money? I would dump it into staffing, right? That knowing that we had good quality, competent firefighters to go out there and handle all of those things. All the things you mentioned are good and they're all part of firefighter safety, same as me, but firefighters use that equipment to handle the emergency calls that we go on. And so if I ever had any extra, which again has never happened to me, but if I did, I'd put it all to staffing, right? Radios and tick cameras sitting in a pile on the ground with no firefighters to use them aren't very good, I guess. Eh? Right. How many, <laughs> how many times did we watch the water bombers and go, okay, that's all great. It's a big fancy show, right? It's aluminum overcast here today. You know, there's helicopters and bombers and, but it's not out till some firefighters tromp out there check it all, put it all out, dig it up, make sure that it's out, right? And so all those are tools. They're all important. They all help with everything. But at the end of the day, it's firefighter. And sadly enough, it's one of those weird, sad situations where they're always the last ones. Nobody says a word to us when we spend a million dollars on a fire truck. But give a firefighter a dollar an hour raise and everybody's losing their minds and how dare we waste their tax money. And so if I had the money, that's where I'd put it. Yeah. And I think the other thing there is that there's tons of different ways too, right? Like even if your area doesn't support the call volume, there's ways now that we're seeing in the fire service every day with combination services where you staff during the day, or maybe you staff on weekends or you staff on your busy times, right? Even the whole, like the new generation, we're not paying or we're not doing it for free anymore. No one's doing it for free. And it does, right? Like the old guys that are going out, they started at the right time for their the right reasons at that time. And nowadays, you know, we just had a conversation, I can't remember who with the other day about, right, like you're you're 18 years old, you want to join the fire department. Well, you also have bills to pay and everything costs more in 2021 (laughs) and everything, right? Gone are the days where you can just go, that last fire I was talking about, those guys spent seven, eight hours out there. They gave up their entire day and we can't keep expecting these people to do it all for free. We just can't. It's impossible for sure. It's back to budget, right? Yeah. Ego, turf, time, and money. Always. (laughs) Okay, this one's probably going to hurt a bit. A little bit of sting in this one, but we'll tackle it anyways. So biggest failure in your career and why? And what did you learn to improve to make it better in the future? Right? So this is, speaking of ego, these are always the ones that beat your ego up a bit and punch you back where you should be. So you want to go first or you want me to take this one? I can go. All right. I got one. All right. So mine is kind of a different one, I guess, because when I first say it, you'll think, you know, that happens all the time, but it wasn't about the actual action. It was about how I took it. So we were responding one night, super snowy, wicked blizzard, had a great crew with us. I was driving a pretty new truck, a couple years old, not even at the time. And uh, we were going lights and sirens, a duty officer, which is kind of like a platoon chief or something like that for us, runs our region, was out in front of us and, you know, said a couple of times, roads are super bad. Take your time. At the beginning of the call, we pull out kind of lights and sirens through town. It was, I want to say like kind of 
midnight-ish. So there's a couple cars, get out of town and highways are pretty dark. Like there's no one risking the roads this night. It was, it was pretty bad. And so we shut the emerge lights off just to kind of dampen that reflection of snow. Couldn't see the roads, complete white over conditions. So we're kind of cruising along. I think I'm going between 60 and 80. I don't think I got over 80 the entire time. And so as we go, our duty officer's in a pickup truck. So he gets there a little bit quicker. We equip them with good winter tires, four-wheel drive, all that stuff. And when they get on scene, you could tell right away by the radio reports that it was bad and they needed people there right now. We had two people that were trapped, kind of carnage everywhere. Couldn't even tell if we could find everyone because of the snow and traffic still trying to come through. Vehicles coming hot into scene because they couldn't see again. And so as we go, we think we're getting close and we got an update um, that it was right before a specific bridge that for me, I lived in Slave Lake, live in Slave Lake for 25 years now. I know that highway like the back of my hand. So I was hammering down as fast as I could, but you know, I was creeping up. I was trying to get over that 80 kilometers an hour. I was trying to get as much speed safely that I felt that I could get to get there and help this guy who's on scene by himself giving us these awful reports. And all of a sudden we come over this hill and we had just turned our merge lights back on and what looked like to me a scene that was very far away could only see about half of the emerge lights on his truck just because of the snow. And as the snow kind of cleared a little bit, I found out that the scene was like right on top of us. So off the gas, onto the brakes, and it was just the slightest touch of the brakes. And it was like that curling rock feeling, just all four tires locked up and we just started to slide. So in that moment, thinking back on it now, it's all very clear to me. It's all very slow. It happened in the span of probably five seconds, but there was our duty officer parked in the lane of traffic that we were traveling in and he was standing behind his truck. So that would have been a duty officer sandwich. There was a loaded Plains Super B. I still remember it was a big white cab, had a big silver silver, uh, bug deflector on the front. Like I said, I probably could describe his face if I thought about it long enough. Coming right past his truck in the other lane. And we had, uh, it was an offset frontal head-on collision and separated on each ditch in the highway. So I had cars right off each side with patients trapped in both. Somehow, you know, I like to think that it was from some experience driving in our our driver training program. I was able to thread the needle and miss. I went to the right-hand side, something that you always taught me from driving a long time, right? Take the ditch. The ditch is always going to be more forgiving than anything else you can find. So I can't believe you actually learned something from all the stuff. (laughs) I I took the ditch, somehow missed duty officer truck and the planes tanker and both vehicles. All I remember is the captain in the front seat. I've known him. He started in the fire service the same way I did, young guy. And he just kept saying, we're done, we're done, we're done. And he was grabbing (laughs) onto stuff. And we kind of went in probably about, well, I mean, I was probably going between 60 and 80 again and slowing down as we came up, but it didn't really work. And hit the ditch, hit an approach, bounced the front end. There was a traffic analyst that actually came out and we talked about it after and he figured probably about 10, 12 feet that the front tires never even hit the ground. Obviously, I didn't know there was an approach there. It was kind of one of those ones that no one uses. Bounced over top, down into the ditch and we're stuck. So real quick, officer did a great job. Okay, everyone good? Yeah, 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 everyone's good. For about two seconds, I remember right after we got in the ditch, I had, I had my foot just pinned to the floor. And 
it might've been like a millisecond, but it seemed like a couple seconds to me. And it took me a second to like snap out of it and go like, what are you doing? Like I took my foot off the gas. I'm like, obviously we're staying here. So, right. We're good. We're good. We're good. Everyone was good. We all helped each other out. We all got out the driver's side cause we were kind of in a little bit down to the passenger side. So that was the accident. And we all got out. There was some minor injuries. A few of us went to the hospital after, but like enough to to get the job done, right? At that point, so much adrenaline from the crash and this crazy call, we're just, we're rolling with it. The biggest thing that I still, that bugs me about the whole call is that our extrication tools were on the passenger side and they were underneath of the muskeg because it was like an October, big snowstorm before the ground really got to freeze trapped underneath of this door and we couldn't get out, right? We're bashing it with tools. We're trying to just wreck this door. We don't care at this point mm-hmm. and didn't get it, didn't get it. Meanwhile, on the other side, this guy's in really rough shape. We're trying to get him out. So we got up top, got the airbag kit, went down. His foot was stuck in between the dash and the thing. So we were going to use the airbags instead, which is awesome. Like I said, we had a great crew that night and we were able to come up with a new plan and, and adapt and Good overcome, yeah. which I think was one of the wins in my mind for that night. Anyways, ended up getting him out, got the other person out. He was kind of an extrication, but not really, no tools needed. And yeah, so after that whole thing, EMS transported, I think one was a fatality, ended up being a fatality. The other one was transported and everything was kind of good. And then afterwards, I remember Patrick, who was still my boss, obviously at the time coming up to me and he says, I can't believe that there's no damage to the front of our truck. What do you, what do you mean? Like, I, we hit the approach, <laughs> but what? And he's like, well, you hit that car, right? Cause one of the cars in the offset frontal was like right beside our direction of travel. And he felt that hit of the approach. approach and he yeah. thought that we smoked this car head on and that we were helping this guy that we caused. So in his mind, it was like way worse than like, he's like, yeah. am I going to have to fire this guy? Like, yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah. Right. And uh, I was like, no, no, we didn't hit anyone. He's like, oh, thank God, right? And we kind of had like a come to Jesus moment in the front of the truck. And from there, right, lots of stuff happened. Offloaded water, had to pull it out. The highway was shut down because it was a fatality. We waited. It was a whole big thing. I can even remember the phone call, right? And and I was asking, you know, was everybody okay? First question you have to ask. And everyone was. And so we go through it all. And, And we had the driver program. Like insurance was happy. The cops were happy. Everyone's happy. And I remember you asking you, you know, what did you see there? And you said, uh, red, red, green. So those of you that know, know, and those of you that don't, don't, but, uh, you took the green lane, the only lane that was left to you. And, and so, you know, to me, that was a proud moment because not only cause you'd learned that and you did a good job, you didn't kill a whole truck full of firefighters or other people on the scene, but that our training program was so solid that you literally saw red, red, green and, and took the green, right? So those things, so, you know, what do you take from that into the future? So, you know, I, again, I didn't beat myself up because a truck was wrecked. I mean, it sucked. It was our frontline truck and it was out for a while, but I didn't beat myself up over that. I didn't beat myself up. The biggest thing that I beat myself up over was that I always, I was a driver instructor at the time. Actually, I drove a lot. I got quite a bit of experience there. I had driven in winter conditions before. And one thing that I always preached was that when you get behind the wheel of that fire truck, it's not just about you and your life when you're driving your personal vehicle or you have other people in your truck and their families are counting on you to bring them home safe. And, and that really, you know, that was something that stuck with me for a long time. And I struggled with it for a while. And I think that the one way that I finally kind of came up with myself was that 
you know, I can sit here and feel bad for myself and that I let these people down, or I could make changes to our fire service for the good in little ways that I could. And so some of the things that we did immediately, we started working even more on the driver training program. We added nighttime driving, we added some winter conditions. So when it, if you do your driver training in the spring, when it gets to winter, we'll take you out. We'll, we'll talk about ice, things like that. We did some driver training at the airport on icy conditions after that and let people see how far it slides and all of that. And I think our driver training program was already good. And I, I, I believe personally that our driver training program is great now. And that's uh, one big one. And the other one that is such a simple thing is kind of funny is on I'm Responding, which is kind of like the app that we use in all of our trucks on iPads and stuff. Now we have pins dropped with kilometer markers all the way along Highway 2 and turnaround points. So from all the way to Slave Lake, all the way to the edge of our district, we have about 550 kilometers of highway we cover. About 300 of them are done right now and we're still working on it. But every single place, if we actually went out and drove them, and if it's good enough to be a turnaround point for a fire truck, there's a little turnaround button on the side of the road. And all the places like the front side, back side of the Ottawa Hill, the Salto, the Ottawa River, like all these things that we know because we're They're locals bad, yeah. are bad and we always use them as reference points, actually have kilometer signs with what kilometer of highway it is at each one of those points. So technology nerds, you guys. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> right? that's so awesome. I think that was a big one for me too, right? And it, it, not to blame it on this duty officer at all, right? Like yeah. it, it was chaos that night and I didn't really know where I was, but if we would have got that right information, it might've changed something, right? So I'm not gonna sit here and, and play the blame game or say what if, but that was a way that I thought maybe future those duty officers could overcome that. Those officers could overcome that by knowing exactly where they were on the highway. Nice, good one. There's so much good stuff out of that, right? Talking about the driver's program and, and moving it forward. Mine's gonna be shorter and just different. I would say the biggest failure in my career to this point has been the Slave Lake fire. And I'm not gonna justify it with a bunch of things and I don't want you all getting a hold of me and saying, ah, oh, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not about that, right? To me, it was... Simply the fact that we followed the game plan of the person that had come before me, right? So the plan had always been in Slave Lake that when a forest fire comes, because it will, because it's a fire prone area and the wildfire history map told us it was going to happen, is that we would rim the outside of town and we would hook the trucks up to hydrants and we'd get the hoses out and we'd spray water and we would hold the fire back. And that was the plan. And we trained on that and we thought about that and we passed it on from guy to guy. And I don't blame anyone. That was just what would happen. And standing on 12th Street, southeast in Slave Lake, watching those embers blow over top of us was an instant failure point. It was like, oh, we believed in a plan and we trained to a plan that's not going to work. And so I think, you know, for me, moving forward from that, there's a million learning things from Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, but one of the big ones for me is always question the plan, right? So if you write it down, you got a pre-plan, you got this, you're, you know, you have a plan in your head, always question the plan. You know, always ask yourself what could go wrong? What else could go wrong? What else could go wrong? And make a plan for those things. And so I think, you know, I learned that day in a 10-hour period to never just blindly trust the plan never just blindly trust the training never just blindly follow what was going you know we had to adjust adapt duck dive dodge <laughs> you got to do all those things and and no so for me out of that failure comes that knowledge that be thinking of a through z all the time and and never blindly trust something that someone says right 
And so I think that's kind of why I'm a bit of a hater on those ego guys that always want everything to be their way and their plans the best. And, you know, it's, it's all about them and their fire department and not about the greater good. Cause I just know that that's a failure point. There's just no chance that that's going to work. It might work a little bit here and a little bit there. It might work great for them, but it might not work for the global good. And so I'm going to go with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to jump over the magic wand bit for a second, and we're going to talk about how do you balance family and fire. So, so this is uh, this question actually came from a guy we used to work with, Paul, out in uh, on Vancouver Island. There, you know, he's always a single guy, and so now he's thinking about going back to fire, and he's got uh, a wife and some kids, and and he's just like, how how do people do it? Right. And so I actually have to have this talk with firefighters constantly. I just had it a, a little while ago. I've had it with you before. Right. And I always pick quality over quantity. Right. So when you're there, be there. Right. So if, you know, you can talk about this after, but when you were growing up, when your sister was growing up, if it was a thing that I had to be there for, I tried to be there. And 90% of those events I was there for, right? I coached hockey teams. I went to swim meets. I went to school events. I had special person day. Like I tried as hard as I could to make the number one special events. That being said, I think that you all, especially now that you're older, understood that there's times where other people's needs were bigger than the needs of our family, right? So it's Christmas day, we're opening presents, but someone's house is on fire, I'm going to fight a house fire. That's more important than the needs of our family. But when I was there, I always tried to make sure that I was there. And that's what I tell the young firefighters and about their families, right? So when you're there, be all in, right? If you're taking your kid to the park, then play with them and do some stuff and be all in. Don't be looking at your phone. Don't worry if your yeah. you know, phone goes off, your radio goes off, your pager goes off. Be all in. And so to me, balancing family and fire is... Number one, having the most understanding spouse that you can find and, and get along with. You know, my wife is, she's as fire as anybody out there and uh, always has been, always will be, understands the, the greater good, understands that a million things are going to get wrecked by having to be part of the fire family, but also understands that being part of the fire family is important. It's important for for me, for the kids, for the for the people that we protect and serve. And so she's always about that. So, you know, having a great spouse that you talk to and, and share things with and be part of the system. Um, and then, you know, quality over quantity, making sure that you're there in the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for me it's probably the same in the the fact of for a long time, I was, I guess, kind of like Paul, right? I, I lost relationships over it. I lost friends over it. I lost from the time I was 15 to the time I was probably 22 years old. I was 100% all about fire all the time. And there was no turning me off of it. And there was no, right? It was, it was just go, go, go. And I didn't care. There was no turning it off. There was no, right? I, I didn't care what I left. I didn't care. And it was just that young, naive guy trying to soak in absolute everything that was possible. And then casing came along and it changed a lot of things, right? And you have to reevaluate the priorities in your life and going to work and helping people is, is what I do. And I truly believe that that was my calling. But, you know, there has to be times where other people need to take that burden on also, right? And I think nowadays, like you said, really having that quality time and 
being engaged in what you're doing and not, right? If you decide to go and do something, it's okay. Someone someone else is there to cover it, right? If you're on call, yeah, for sure, be on call. But if you're not on call and you've planned this, leave everything at home, right? Disconnect yourself from that and, and just go and be able to truly be there with your family, girlfriend, wife, kids, right? And really disconnect. And then I think the other thing is, a lot of these places now that are, you know, volunteer, paid on call, full-time, whatever, there's some kind of balance to not just always being on call all the time, right? So in Slave now, for example, we do a week on, week off with our with our paid on calls, volunteers, whatever we're calling them right now. And they know that for a week straight, they're first up. And then the next week, the only time they're getting paged is if there's not enough members, it's a really serious call or a structure fire automatically, right? So there's like a couple things where... It might happen, you know, once every couple times that they're off. But for the most part, they get that week and they're allowed to be off, right? They they can disconnect a little bit. They might leave their I'm responding on their phone turned on. And if they see a fire, they're like, yeah, I'm going. But their, their pager might not be strapped to them all the time. They're actually planning to go and do things with their family. So if your department has the ability to do that, definitely that also, right? Just be able to make those times and... Um, well, and, and you know what? Drag them into it. Yeah. Right? I mean, growing up fire, this whole podcast, our whole family, like this is the family business for us, right? And your sister fought it more than anyone on earth, right? I'll never be a firefighter. And now she's second year emergency management and on the podcast with me and going to all these different fire halls and places to talk to all these great people with me. And, you know, I think we drug you guys into it maybe kicking and screaming for some, for others very willingly like you. And just, you know, the balance has to be those two families, yeah. your family and the fire family. Absolutely. Okay, we got enough time to, to do one more. We're not going to get to them all, so don't be upset, folks. There'll be more of these to come. You can keep sending in your questions. We'll try to hammer them as best we can. But we're going to handle the magic wand. If you had a magic wand, how would you fix the fire industry? <laughs> I'm going to give you one that's probably going to cause more questions for you and people are not going to agree with me, but that's okay. I've had this conversation with some people lately and it really came to light with all of the limelight on the police that's been going on. And if I had one thing that I could do, I would, I look at other emergency services and there is people who get to look through their tactics and what they do with the fine tooth comb every single time that there's any serious incident. ACERT for us ACERT, in Alberta, yeah, you bet. EMS has like QPS, quality patient safety. They go through every single PCR and in the fire service, nobody cares about us. One fire service can make an offensive fire, a defensive fire and not go in. One fire service can be way too aggressive. One fire service is using, you know, like you said, this salesman said that this is the best thing. We actually know that there's science behind all this stuff. You need a certain amount of water to overcome a certain amount of fire. And because everyone just loves firefighters and we're the heroes and we come and fix their problems, nobody is looking at us and trying to make sure that we have quality improvement. And I think that it would drastically change a fire service if I had, and I, I'm somebody who's very critical of myself and I sit there and I dissect every single decision that I make on those serious calls. And 
I think that one of my really good benefits as a person is I like to hear feedback that's negative to me, right? I'm not one of those people who gets sad about someone calling me out or whatever. Yeah. So for me, I think that I would put a little (laughs) bit more accountability on the fire service. I love it because we're going to like completely disagree on this one, which is awesome. (laughs) Because I think, yeah, they have all those things and it doesn't really change anything. Right. I could give you a hundred examples where the police didn't learn a damn thing in the last hundred years and they're still struggling with the same crap on the road. The, the low end, you know, the new members are still struggling with the same crap and they didn't fix anything. I don't even know if you can compare anything to AHS. Like, you know, I'm from the fire world. So, you know, that's just like a dumpster fire in a pool of oil that's on fire surrounded by a house, a neighborhood that's on fire covered in crashing planes as far as I'm concerned. So won't make any friends with that comment, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's how I feel about it. For me, how would we ever figure out the benchmark? How would we ever say we fixed the fire industry? Right? Like I could definitely tell you what I think that was would be. And I go to work every day and try to fix it according to what I think and what the people I work with think, but I'm never going to come up with the benchmark. Right. And so there's people in EMS that would say, Jamie, why don't you shut up? We're sick. You, you know, yapping about AHS. You don't know anything about it. And they would tell me all the great things about it and they'd be right too. Yeah. You know, and the police would say, yeah, okay, there's things we struggle with and we hate, but here's a bunch of other things that are good and that we like. And and so the same thing goes for fire, right? Some things are great, some things are bad. And at the end of the day, I don't know how we would ever define, did we fix it, right? So other than to say the thing I always say, which is firefighter safety, you know, every time we go out there and we handle the incident, whatever it is, and we come home safe, did we do a good job? Maybe we're already there. Maybe 99.9% of the time we're already crushing it and it's fixed, right? You know, I could talk about the dinosaurs getting out of the way. I could talk about mandatory retirement ages. I could talk about going out there slapping all those monkeys that run around telling everybody they're the greatest and nobody else can touch them and just wrecking it for everybody. But then that's just my opinion. Maybe the fire service needs all of those things. Maybe, you know, so I don't know. I hate to kind of leave it there. But at the end of the day, if you had a magical wand, right, it's like three wishes. The first thing you wish for is more wishes, but that's always a rule that you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) And so what would I actually physically one thing at a time wish for, right? I would always wish for firefighter safety, right? I would always wish for a better understanding of the people that are in charge of us, that the deal with the money and the politics and the levels of service. I would always wish that we could get enough funding to do the things that we have to do. But again, without the benchmark, without saying this is how much we have to do, how much money is that, right? So we're constantly trying to win that battle of justifying what we're doing and to what level and, right? So, you know, if I had a magic wand and and I wanted to fix the fire industry, I would just simply wave it and say, every firefighter comes home every single time, period. Maybe that would fix everything we need to worry about. Right. If we never had to worry about a firefighter getting hurt, we could go in all, you know, all in and, and do the things we had to do. It's not a reality. That's why it's a magic wand. Right. So, uh, you know, to me, it's those different things and how we all look at it so differently. It could be controversial if you need it to be right. If you're listening to this and you want to get all worked up because we said something about your agency or something that you don't then great. 
But I think one of the things that fixes it is when we don't get all fired up about that stuff. When we actually just look at it and say, oh, oh, okay, well, let's figure this out. Let's, let's work on it together. And when we stop working on it together, and I'm famous for a few places where I just absolutely quit working on things together and, and left. Those of you that know me know some of those locations. And I think those are failures where you're just like, you know, it's so frustrating or, or so irritating or so stupid that you just give up and, and move on. How do we fix the fire industry? One step at a time, one decision at a time, one dollar at a time. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, it takes good people to just keep pushing it along. And right. It is what it is. Every single career, every single profession has the people who are in it for them and are climbing the corporate ladder and the people who are in the background making sure <laughs> that things are getting done the way that they should be getting done. So, all right, beauty. We didn't get to all the questions, but keep them coming. We'll, we'll keep trying to do this every once in a while and, and answer what we can answer. And we'll certainly try to answer it on social media as best we can. Growing Up Fire, episode 21. Ryan Coots. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.